listening to the coffee hour i'm andy bates i'm sarah golseth this has been the most fun series <laughs> this is a blast we get to do some fun series okay happy we, we hobbies ha- was that pretty was, fun happy <laughs> hobbies was a fun one. Oh, we're gonna have to get our guest when we like reconvene that one again yeah, yeah. someday we're gonna have to find out what dr mckenzie's favorite <gasps> hobby is oh, for another series that's, that's another, for another day. series <laughs> thanks to concordia university wisconsin for supporting the coffee hour you can find out more about concordia university wisconsin at cuw.edu live uncommon we are continuing our series in the english reformation our guest the reverend dr cameron mckenzie professor of historical theology at concordia theological seminary in fort wade indiana dr mckenzie welcome back thank you andy and sarah i'm glad to be with you again We are continuing our conversation on the English Reformation. Last time we left off with Mary Tudor, I believe. Yes. So where would you like to pick up with the story today? Well, when we introduced Mary, we mentioned that her objective was to restore Catholicism in England. That drove some English Protestants out of the country. They are the Marian exiles. And they will bring back continental Protestantism with them when they return to England under Elizabeth. And then we talked about the Marian martyrs, those 200 or so who were put to death under Mary on account of their refusing to recant their Protestant faith. And of course, their story helped to shape the views that Protestants in England had, especially about Catholicism. So now we want to bring the reign of Mary to a close. It's, it's a short one. She was on the throne just for five years, 1553 to 1558. Had she lived longer, it's possible that she might have restored Catholicism in a kind of complete way to England, but she didn't. And uh, from her standpoint, making matters even worse was the fact that she connected her religious commitments to an unpopular foreign marriage. Her advice, well, Let me just say this. One of the things that I can feel sympathy with Mary for is the fact that her father treated her very badly, especially after he had divorced Catherine of Aragon. And one of the things that he did not do for her, as he would have or should have for her, was arrange a good marriage. She was, after all, the daughter of a king, and she should have found as a husband somebody of an equal rank. But That wasn't the case. So Mary inherited the throne when she was 37 years old, had never married, wanted to marry, and so set about looking for a husband. Her English advisors were more or less inclined to maybe from the English nobility in order to keep England from being involved in somebody else's problems, the way a marriage alliance could do it in those days. But But Mary wanted to restore the alliance between England and Spain. That was her mother's country. And she also wanted to find a ruler who, like her, was committed to Catholicism. And so she pushed for and finally obtained the right candidate in her first cousin once removed, Philip, uh, Philip of Spain. Philip was the son of Charles V. So it's, and Charles V was not only emperor of the Holy Roman Emperor Empire, but also king of Spain. So it was, again, created an alliance between England and Spain. One problem, however, was that because the dynasty 
now ruled not only Spain, but also the Holy Roman Empire, parts of Italy, the Netherlands, etc., that England got involved with the dynastic challenges and conflicts of Charles's dynasty. And that included a war with France. So along with the marriage, she gets involved in a war with France on behalf of her now allies in the empire and in Spain. Her husband, Philip, came to England. And what Mary, of course, wanted so much was a child by her husband, but that didn't happen. At one point, Mary thought she was pregnant. Indeed, the court thought she was pregnant. It turned out not to be the case. And uh, Philip, after residing in England for more than a year with his wife, finally left because he was in the process of becoming king of Spain and we be would become the most powerful Catholic monarch in the second half of the 16th century, Philip II of Spain. So Mary was frustrated in her desire for a child. And not too long after that, she contracted cancer and finally met her death in November of 1558. So from my perspective, she's kind of a sad story. But from the standpoint of the Reformation, her death once again opens the way for a Protestant Reformation in England. So then what happened, the, the death of Mary? She wasn't on the throne that long. What, what happened with the, the switch to the next yeah. monarch? Well, she, she is succeeded by her half-sister, Elizabeth, another child of Henry VIII. So we get three in a row. We get Edward, Mary, and now Elizabeth. Elizabeth was a much different kind of person from Mary, not only in her religion, she was Protestant, but also in her political skills. She turned out to be one of the greatest monarchs in English history. She was 25 years old when she became queen. Already by that time, she had lived through some rather precarious situations. When she was just a toddler, her mother was beheaded. Then during the reign of her brother, who was a Protestant as she was, when her brother decided to make a will leaving the throne to somebody, he skipped over his sister Elizabeth and chose instead Lady Jane Grey. Now, that probably turned out to be a blessing for Elizabeth, as if she had, she could have gone the way of Lady Jane, and that would have meant being beheaded under the reign of her sister. But as a matter of fact, there was an uprising under Mary by Protestants. It was put down rather easily and quickly. But there was strong suspicion that Elizabeth might have been involved in that plot against the Queen Mary. And the ambassador from the Holy Roman Empire really urged Mary to put Elizabeth to death. Well, Mary didn't, but she could have. And so when Elizabeth finally comes to the throne, she's already had to think quite a little bit about how do you yourself in this kind of precarious situation where if you're somebody in charge or somebody close to the throne, you might very well have people trying to kill you in order to get to the next person. So anyway, she's got these, she turns out to have good political skills. She's a good ruler. And she has one more thing that goes in her favor. And that is she actually loved her subjects and she exercised royal power on their behalf. She maybe didn't always make the right decisions, but the decisions that she made were in the interest of her, of her people. Almost from the beginning, 
Everybody who knew anything knew that Elizabeth was a Protestant. She had conformed to Catholicism during the reign of her sister, but all of her supporters, the ones who were close to her, were known to be Protestant sympathizers. Uh, and Elizabeth, like her brother Edward, had been tutored by men who favored the new learning and ultimately uh, favored Protestantism as well. Moreover, as soon as she comes to the throne, those Marian exiles start coming back and they bring Protestantism with them and they are Elizabeth's strong supporters. So the question really becomes not, will she restore Protestantism, but in what form will she restore Protestantism? And that was answered by the first parliament of her reign. It was kind of standard practice for the English monarchs of this time when they first came to the throne to summon a parliament. The, the parliament had, among other duties, kind of the legislating of the tax system during that particular reign. And so there were some taxes that kind of lasted for a reign. And if the parliament didn't meet, then they didn't get paid anymore. So a parliament always met right at the beginning of the reign. But this parliament would have the task of dealing with the religious question. And so that, that had to be answered. Now, it was possible that Elizabeth might just have done a kind of reformation like her father's. And that means just break with the Pope. Elizabeth loved and respected her father. So that could have very well been an option for her. And in fact, just as when Henry had done that, it might have been the case that if Elizabeth did just that, the Catholic bishops might have gone along with it. Remember, Henry's bishops, with one exception at all, bought into the supreme headship idea, break with the Pope, but don't change anything else. So perhaps Elizabeth thought that could work. Well, it didn't. The bill to restore the monarch to being the supreme in the church, started to make its way through parliament. And when it got to the House of Lords, there, the bishops, who were also a part of the House of Lords at that time, the Catholic bishops all opposed it. So they were not going to embrace a kind of reformation like Henry's. Nonetheless, it still might have been useful for Elizabeth to go slow because of this war with France. In her war with France, England was allied with the more powerful partner, namely Spain and the empire. So she wouldn't want to alienate Philip of Spain any more than she had to. And so maybe she would have gone slow for that reason also, but they made peace with France. So that alliance wasn't all that necessary anymore. So Elizabeth decides to go forward with two pieces of legislation. One, an act of supremacy. And the act of supremacy made the monarch supreme in the Church of England. They no longer, in this act, they no longer called the queen, the monarch supreme head. I think they were kind of embarrassed about calling anybody head of the church besides our Lord Jesus Christ. So they call her in this legislation, supreme governor of the church in England. And this meant not that the monarch is a bishop or a priest, a clergy person, but rather that the monarch has the supreme oversight of the church to make sure that the personnel of the church and the practices of the church all conform with the confessions of the church rooted, of course, in the Holy Scriptures. So that was her position and that was her title by means of the act of supremacy. But there was another bill 
that came along. Act of Supremacy is the first law passed under Elizabeth. The second law passed under, under Elizabeth was an act of uniformity. And this bill imposed a book of common prayer upon the churches of England. Now, we talked a little bit about the book of common prayer under Elizabeth's brother, Edward. And one way of thinking about the Elizabethan settlement is it just kind of picks up where her brother's reformation left off. So the Act of Uniformity imposed a book of common prayer, and the book of common prayer that she imposed was the book that had been in place when her brother died. Now, I noticed the time. I've been going on here a little bit long. Maybe we should take a break. We will do that. Before we do that, though, just chronologically, where are we in time? Yes. Or what year is this? Good question. Roughly. Good question. 1559. 1559. Very good. Yeah. All right. We've made it to 1559. <laughs> we have more to talk about in the English Reformation in just a moment. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. At Concordia University, Wisconsin, we believe you were created for a reason, to use your God-given gifts to help others, to live a life of self-sacrifice in a me-first world, to live a life that's uncommon. Whether you're taking one of 50-plus online programs or learning with us in person on the shores of Lake Michigan, you'll be equipped to make an uncommon impact. Learn more at cuw.edu. Concordia University, Wisconsin. Live uncommon. Welcome back to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. We are continuing our series in the English Reformation with the Reverend Dr. Cameron McKenzie, Professor of Historical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. We've made it to 1559 and the reign of Elizabeth. So let's see, we left off with uniformity and the Book of Common Prayer right. being imposed and the supremacy of the, the monarch in the church. Right. Now, okay. what I want the listeners to realize then is that the English Reformation finally ends up with two key characteristics. One, the monarch is the supreme governor in the church, and two, all of England will worship out of the same book, the Book of Common Prayer. What's missing here, for Lutherans especially, is a confession of faith. They don't have that yet. And a confession of faith never becomes so characteristic of the Church of England as it would be of the Lutheran Church. Now, we'll get there in a second, but they don't have one to begin with. So the, I want to say one more thing about the Act of Uniformity, the Book of Common Prayer. This book is a Protestant book that's characterized by what we call today Reformed theology when it comes to the Lord's Supper. And that means that instead of the communicants eating the body and blood of our Lord, they eat bread and wine while at the same time participating in spiritual blessings. And I want to read to you what the priest would say when he distributed the consecrated host. This is what he would tell the people. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee, preserve thy body and soul into everlasting life. 
and take and eat this in remembrance that Christ died for thee and feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving. And it's that last clause, feed on him in thy heart by faith with thanksgiving, that differentiates this communion from our communion. Of course, we want people to feed on Jesus in their hearts, but in the Lord's Supper, everybody is receiving the body and blood of Jesus because that's what our Lord says was there. Whereas in the Reformed tradition, it's bread and wine that are there. And then spiritually, you, you, a person unites with, with our Lord. So it's a different way of thinking about the Lord's Supper from what is characteristic of Lutheranism. And I wanted to make, pe- make sure that people understood that the Book of Common Prayer belongs to the Reformed Protestant tradition, not, not the Lutheran tradition. So that, those are the twin pillars. Now, a few years later, uh, the bishops of the church, and they're now Protestant bishops, Elizabeth has replaced the Catholics with Protestants, they felt the need for a confession of faith. And so they drafted a confession of faith that's arranged in 39 articles and presented it to the representative body of the church called the Convocation. And in 1563, that confession of faith was adopted. But because it was it had only been done by the church assembly, it was not really the law of the land. Or if it was the law of the land, it, it couldn't be forced, enforced in the, in the courts. So in 1571, Parliament actually passed that. And so what was missing from the Elizabethan settlement to begin with, now theologically at least completed, by a confession of faith, the 39 articles. And these 39 articles are definitely Protestant. They affirm biblical authority. They affirm justification by faith alone. They affirm two sacraments. They reject transubstantiation. But when it comes again to the Lord's Supper, they affirm only a kind of spiritual eating by believers rather than a real eating with your mouth by all those who attend the communion. So again, it's a reformed confession. And so the Church of England theologically belongs more with the Church of Switzerland than it would with the Lutheran Church of Germany or Scandinavia. Uh, I guess the next thing I would like to talk about briefly here is the problem that Elizabeth had with certain religious dissidents. It's one thing to legislate it's another thing to change human hearts. And that takes a while. And of course, as you might expect, in England, after Mary and after all the religious change of the previous reigns, there were many who were most familiar with and still believed in the traditional religion, the old religion of medieval Catholicism. And so Elizabeth's reign is characterized by problems with the Catholics. Now, At first, Elizabeth was hopeful that everybody would conform. So she wasn't particularly tough on people who didn't. There was a fine, or if you were in government, you could lose your job, but she wasn't interested in creating martyrs. But after about 10 years on the throne, things changed. And one of the things that changed, and I hope we can talk about this a little bit in a later episode, was that the Queen of Scotland, Mary, Queen of Scots, had been driven out of Scotland. One of the reasons being 
that she was a Catholic. Elizabeth had permitted her to stay in England, but she's there in England, really next in line to the throne. Elizabeth wasn't married, had no children. Who would be next? Well, the Queen of Scotland had a pretty good claim. She was Elizabeth's cousin once removed. So she's, she could be the heir to the throne. And if you were a Catholic, that sounded pretty good. So if you could get rid of Elizabeth, Mary would be on the throne. And that's what started to happen after she arrived. She gets there in 1568 and we get a rebellion by some Catholic nobility in the north of England who want Elizabeth out and Mary in. And that's the first of several such plots that persist during the reign of Elizabeth. So Elizabeth's attitude toward Catholics now becomes one of cracking down on them, persecuting them, treating them basically as potential traitors rather than as heretics. Moreover, the Pope didn't help the Catholics out because in 1570, Pope Pius V issued an official papal bull regarding the status of Elizabeth as the Queen of England. And in this bull, he says, Elizabeth had no right to inherit because she was illegitimate. She was the daughter of Anne Boleyn to whom Henry was not legally or churchly married. And then uh, she is a heretic who is trying to send people to hell by imposing Protestantism. And therefore, the Pope concluded, all good Catholic Englishmen should disobey her and try to replace her. So the Pope himself puts English Catholics into this category of, of a traitor. And so Elizabeth's government began to crack down, passing legislation to make it illegal to practice the Catholic faith. And she ends up, Elizabeth does, in putting perhaps a couple hundred Catholics to death during her reign. But unlike Mary, who turned them into martyrs, Elizabeth turns them into traitors. And there grows up during the reign of Elizabeth kind of identification in the popular mind that if you're a Catholic, you're, you can't be a good Englishman. You are probably a traitor. Now, this thing comes to a head in the 1580s. Well, two things happened in the 1580s, and maybe we'll want to pick them up in the next episode. Mary, Queen of Scots, is executed, and Philip II launches the Spanish Armada to remove Elizabeth from the throne. I can't wait till the 1580s. <laughs> because there's something else that happens in 1580, if oh, I remember yes. correctly, too, but not in the English Reformation. No. <laughs> All right. Well, we need to wrap up for today. Thank you so much, Dr. McKenzie, for this great episode in the English Reformation. Thanks for being our guest again on The Coffee Hour. Well, thanks again for having me. You've been listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Andy Bates. I'm Sarah Golseth. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support The Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.